0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to this uh, episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNudge Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology and neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVA Nudge Consulting. And with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVA Nudge Consulting North America. Hi, Suzanne.
0: Hi, Eric. I'm very happy to be joining you for this episode and excited to be introducing our guest, Professor Uri Genese, who is one of the stars of behavioral economics due to his significant contributions to the field. Uri is a professor of economics and strategic management at the Rady School of Management, UC San Diego. As a researcher, Uri's focus is on putting behavioral economics to work in the real world where theory can meet application. Topics include incentives-based interventions to increase good habits and decrease bad ones, pay-what-you-want pricing, and the detrimental effects of small and large incentives. In addition to the traditional laboratory and field studies, URI is working with several firms conducting experiments in which they are using basic findings from behavioral economics to help companies achieve their traditional goals in non-traditional ways. Professor Ganesi is the co-author, with our friend John List, of an amazing book, The Y-Axis, which discusses how using field experiments can improve our understanding of economic interactions in the real world. And Uri has very recently published Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work, that we're going to discuss in detail today. Uri, welcome to the Be Good podcast.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So Ari, uh, thank you so much again for being with us uh, in this episode of Be Good. Uh, I think you uh, obtained your uh, B degree in economics from uh, Tel Aviv University and a PhD in economics from the Center for Economic Research at Tilburg University in the Netherlands. Can you tell us how about how you came to be? interested in behavioral economics?
2: So the right answer would be that I, that was my dream since I was five years old. But the reality is that in Israel, you first go to the military for three years. So I was 23 when I started my BA, my bachelor degree. And then I looked for the program that could be the fastest. And at the time, you could study economics in two years in Israel because you could study also a summer semester. So that's how I chose economics. And then we moved to the Netherlands for my wife's work. And I wanted to do an MBA or a PhD. And it turns out that if you do an MBA, you have to pay for it. And if you do a PhD, they pay you for it. So I've done, uh, I chose to do a PhD. But then then I started trying to do mathematics. I took a class in my undergrad on applied game theory, which was great, but It was different than what game theory really is. Game theory is a mathematical field, and I don't know mathematics enough. But then I was exposed to behavioral economics. My advisor, Eric Van Damme, is a mathematician himself, but he was uh, very open to behavioral economics. And over there, I found stuff that I really like because of the connection with, with the real world, which I'm doing since then, in the last almost 30 years now.
1: Um, And uh, Maybe you have already shared one, uh, but could you share uh, with us any mentors uh, uh, that had a particularly strong influence on you? Or do you have any researchers or people who have played an influential role in your uh, professional career and maybe in the passion you have for behavioral science?
2: So my advisor that I mentioned, Eric Van Damme, is a mathematician, like I said, but uh, as a mathematician, not bad, but as a mathematician, he has the clearest thought that I've ever met, the, the clearest thinking that I've ever met in my life. So he was able to strip every problem to its core, to the simplest, but not simpler than it should be. And that had a great influence on my on my thinking. And then um, I was lucky enough that Chaim Fershman, Professor Chaim Firstman, was also visiting Tilburg at the time. I studied with him in Tel Aviv, and then I met him as a colleague during my PhD and he had a great, um, he is the, the best economist I know. So he really understands economics and that had a great influence on me. Because one of the differences between the way um, psychologists say that you interview, think about the world and economists is that economist has very powerful tools like optimization and trying to look for understanding competition and things like that, understanding how other people will react to what we are doing. And that's, that's, that's the way I try to think about the world. So those are two key figures in my uh, development, maybe, as a researcher.
0: So, Uri, your recent book, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work, was just published earlier this year, and it's fantastic. I've recommended it to a lot of people already. And before we discuss the content of it, could you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? How did the idea for this book come to
2: you? So I told you that I ended up as an economist by chance, but thinking about incentives is something that did, uh, I did since I was a kid, trying to understand why people, including myself, by the way, are doing what they're doing. Very often we tell other people or we tell ourselves, maybe we'll talk later about signaling to others and signaling to ourselves, but very often we do things, we say that we do it or we think that we do it for one reason, but turns out that we do it for a different one. We have incentives. And since I was very young, I was starting to think, so why are we here today? I'm here to promote a book and to have an interesting discussion. You are here. Every one of us has incentive. The incentive doesn't have to be money, right? We have different reasons to do it. And I always found it fascinating to try and figure out why do people do what they do? They think that the key is incentives.
0: Can you tell us the main learning that you'd like our audience to remember after a conversation? You mentioned in your book that your goal is to show readers how to be incentive smart.
2: Right. So very often I talk with companies and they tell me, oh, we tried incentives already and they didn't work. And the analogy that I like is someone who goes to a bad uh, Japanese restaurant and concludes that uh, Japanese food is bad. No, you just went to a bad Japanese restaurant. Right? and the same is true about incentives not all incentives are created equal and if you understand some basic rules about incentives you can really do much more you can achieve much more with them and uh, I think that that's that's the, that's my goal in my research right to understand how incentives should work now you know if i was if that was a podcast about physics most of the people would trust me that I know what I'm doing because they wouldn't understand what I'm doing if you if you look at someone who received a Nobel Prize in physics, you know that that person must be very smart, but you're not going to question their, um, their theory, for example, or their experiments, because you know that you don't understand And With incentives, you see something different, because all of us face incentives, all of us care about and think about incentives. But uh, as someone who does research on it, I think that there are some insights, very simple insights, because it's not physics, but some insight that could really um, guide us in, in designing the right incentives. And the key to this, that's what I'm talking about in the book, is that incentives are not just incentives. So say that I design some kind of incentives for people who work for me or for my kids or whatever it is. The key is to understand that the incentives are not just incentives, but also the signals that they send. They send signals about what's important for me, what I expect them to do, and so on and understanding these signals is really the key to understanding how to design the right incentives and to understand why some incentives don't work
1: really uh, your uh, uh, it's time now uh, to go into the detail of your book i think we have understand the the, the big idea uh, but i would like to go deeper in the concept first of signals that you already mentioned could you tell us more about what you call signals and give us some concrete example of uh, signals?
2: Sure, so I talk about two types of signals. The signals to others, the social signals, so I want to signal to you maybe that I'm a good person and good could be whatever it is, I want to signal to you that I'm a smart person that I don't know what it is but I want to signal to others many things, I'll give you some examples. Turns out that I also want to learn about myself. So we all, we don't know how good we are, how smart, how successful we are. And very often we use our actions to learn from them. So let me give you a simple example. Imagine that you live in a cold place and you see your neighbor goes to the recycle center with a large bag filled with 100 soda cans. In the morning, in the ice, she does that. You think, what are you going to think about her? She's motivated. She's a great person. She cares about the environment. She could have thrown it into the trash, but she's great, right? And she's probably going to think the same about herself, right? Because she could have thrown it into the trash. She is actually, she cares about the environment. That's great. Now imagine that you live in a place where you get 10 cents for each soda can that you recycle. Same story exactly. But now If you see your neighbor doing this, you're going to to think, oh, she must be cheap, right? For $10, really, she collected all these cans, and now she's going in the ice and snow to to the... She is very cheap. So the social signal is not staying the same once the incentives are there. The incentives... So for a traditional economist, it would be, oh, before that she did it because she cares about the environment, now she gets also $10, even better. But that's not how you're going to see her. It's going to change the meaning. And she also might change the interpretation of what she is ha- given to the action that she's doing. She's going to say, Oh, for $10, it's not worth it. Right? So just the act of in- adding incentives, it's not leaving the, the meaning of what you're doing the same. And that's the, those are the key concepts that I talk about. Uh, uh, the signaling that you're sending with the incentives it's what you expect from me. So before that, the government might have told me, look, it's really important that you recycle. And that's the signal that I received. But now the, the government tells me only it's only 10 cents important. And for 10 cents, if it's that unimportant, I might as well throw them to
1: the trash. Um, and uh, you mentioned that uh, signals are more important than talk. Could you elaborate a little about this?
2: Right. So talk is cheap. Right, I start the book with a, with a story maybe a bit embarrassing but uh, touches close to home. When my son was three, after he was we celebrated his birthday, I took him to Disney World. And when we arrived to the cashier, I saw the sign saying that under three-year-old it's free, over three-year-old, it's $117. And without hesitation, I told her that my son is almost three. Now, you can say that that's, uh, many people are making this lie, but I cared about it because when my son turned three, we tried to convince him that he shouldn't lie. You know, three-year-olds, they are great. They start communicating with you, and then they start lying. And we told him, we told our son, you shouldn't lie. Only bad people lie. And then when faced with $117 incentive, I lied, right? And what did my son take from this? few minutes later, he pulled my shirt and told me, daddy, daddy, you told me that only bad people lie and you just did, right? And that's the, that's the key for mixed signals. You can say one thing, but then when you're faced with the incentives, uh, you do something else. And what I try to do is to look for behavioral ways to, to change behavior. So in this case, you can think about this need that what, what can they do to stop people from lying about the age of their kids. They can ask for birth certificates. say, but then, you know, it's, it's one big family, happy family. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to trust people. So that's not a good solution. They can ask that the child will be there, like in my case, but then turns out that people lie. They could have taken it a step further by asking the kid, tell me, Ron, uh, did you have your third birthday al- already? Now, I could have trained my son to lie. Right, that's uh, that's easy enough to do, but that would be a, a stronger signal that lying is fine. I I don't think that I would have done that. Right, so that's the kind of solutions that I try to find that are also behavioral. Thanks
1: for uh, this uh, honesty, <laughs> and uh, it is a great start for the for the book. And we understand we are all uh, subject to this uh, type of uh, uh, challenge. So uh, you mention. Uh, Uh, that there is a difference between self-signalling and social signalling. But could you come back a little on uh, this and which mechanisms are behind these two types of uh, signalling?
2: So in many cases, uh, for example, think about the first hybrid cars. In the early 2000s, we had the Honda and Toyota that competed on this market. And actually, it was great for them. Something that was great for them was that the car was not great. So the first hybrid cars were really bad. You could find much better cars for the same money. That was actually great, surprisingly great for them, for the hybrid cars, because now if you bought a, you bought one of the hybrid cars, you really signal to others that you care about the environment, maybe also for yourself, but definitely for others that you care about the environment. Right? That's, that's a great... Um, a great social signal. Now, why did Toyota want the market? Toyota and Honda were there, but I guess none of us remembers uh, the name of the Honda competitor, but we all remember Prius. The reason was that Honda based their car on the Honda Civic, car that was existing already, that looked the same. It was probably the engineers who came up with this uh, suggestion, and which makes sense, right? Because the parts are the same, everything is the same. But then when you entered the parking lot at work, no one knew that you're driving this bad car, that you really care about the environment, that you're a great person. And Toyota did something genius, I think. They redesigned the car. Now, when you entered with the Prius, everyone knew that you care about the environment, that you drive a hybrid car. And then the conclusion was that you must be a great person. Otherwise, why would you do that? So they understood the social signaling and redesigned the car. And that was an incentive for people to buy that car. Because now, when they drive around, everyone knew that they are driving a hybrid car and they care about the environment and they are good people.
1: Um, And uh, before I uh, ask Suzanne to uh, move forward, what is the relation between signal and incentives? Um, So,
2: I think that uh, if you think about the hybrid car example, the signaling to others was an incentive for people, right? That's how I see it. The, the signaling to others was part of the incentive to buy this car. Right? So that's the relation. In the, in the recycling example, it was the, the signal that I'm a good person, like with the, with the hybrid car. So the signal to others that I'm a type of person. By the way, uh, that's a good place to talk about uh, when we talk about signals that different people, different groups will have different uh, interpretation for the signals so if you're if you're driving a large pickup truck uh, I probably wouldn't convince you with the signals that I told you about uh, Prius probably your friends will not appreciate you driving Prius right so you need to target the incentive the signals that the incentive sent to the right people and that's uh, that's an important point and uh, it could be differences within uh, I'm from San Diego in San Diego or it could be uh, differences between French, American, and the Israelis, or it could be, um, like I said, within a group. It could be teachers versus doctors versus taxi drivers versus lawyers. Everyone could care about something else, and you need to target the signals that you have to the group that you really that you really care about.
0: So, Uri, of course, the big challenge is what you call mixed signals, which is obviously the title of your book. Can you define? define mixed signals for our audience and why it's so critical not to be sending mixed signals?
2: Right. I can give you a few examples. The example that I gave with Disney World was one in which I told my son one thing, but then when I faced the incentives, I did something else. But think about a company that wants to to incentivize its employees. Now they can incentivize them based on quantity, which many companies do. The more you do, the more uh, you're paid. So think about uh, drivers. Right. You have a taxi company that is uh, paid either the taxi drivers could be paid either per hour or per passenger that they pick up. If you incentivize them based on uh, an hour, so you give them an hourly wage, they will not be very strategic maybe about where they're going to stand. They're not going to be very good at finding the right times, right places to do it because they don't care that much. But they'll be very polite and. Will not drive very aggressively because they don't need to. And that's the quality that every company that I know of, at least, tries to, to put in the in the DNA of the company, right? All, everyone tells that, tells you that we care about uh, about quality, we want you to drive safely, we want you to, to behave well. But then the, the other one, the ones that the other taxi drivers that are paid per rider, they're going to be much more aggressive, they're going to much more likely to be. Involved in car accident. Think about an example that I like. uh, Domino's had this: uh, 30 minutes, or the pizza is free. Right? And then there are funny pictures of uh, what happened to the to the delivery people that you know got involved into car accident. It's not that funny, of course, right? It ended up really poorly, and Domino's Pizza had to stop it. Once you give you pay people per per passenger, per pizza delivered, per quantity, they're going to change their behavior. You can tell them as much as you want that safety is your number one priority, but if you pay them based on quantity, they're not going to follow the quality one. Now, in some cases, the company doesn't care and that's what they want. In other cases, they do want it. And so you need to understand that just telling people be polite and drive safely is not enough. You actually need to incentivize them this way. Now. As I mentioned, there is a tension over here because you do want your drivers to drive fast, to drive efficiently, not fast, but to to be efficient in what they're doing. And the rideshare company like Uber and Lyft found a very nice solution to this. They added another layer of incentives, which is the rating that you give the driver at the end of the ride. So Uber drivers are paid per passenger. So they want to, to be strategic when they go out, where they go out, and so on. But they cannot drive like crazy because then they'll get uh, one star instead of five stars. And if they get enough bad ratings, they will lose their job. So the, in a very smart way, the rideshare companies were able to add another layer of incentive that didn't cost them anything, but that made the drivers care about both things, about efficiency and about uh, customer service, about safety and all the good things that we care about. So. That's an example where the message that the company sends and the incentives are aligned. But very often, like with taxi drivers, it's not aligned. Another example is uh, short run versus long run. So most companies that I know would tell you, oh, we care about the long run, we don't care about the short run. But then if the CEO is paid their quarterly earnings, for example, she's not going to care about the long run. She doesn't have this benefit because she knows that she might lose her job or will not be promoted, or will whatever it is, if uh, if the short run will not work, right? So as uh, if I would have started a company and on a board looking for a CEO, I would tell the CEO, look, for the first couple of years, we are not going to evaluate your work. We're going to let you free hand. We, we trust you. We know that you care about the long run. We don't want you to think about the quarterly earnings. We want you to think about the long run, and then. I think she will also think about the long run, right? She will not say, oh, and I cannot change our uh, computers or computer network. I cannot upgrade it because that will create short-term losses. She will really think about the long run if she will not be evaluated in the short run. And now I can carry on forever. so.
0: No, I love it. So I know in the book, you identified four areas where we often observed mixed signals, and you've just mentioned two of them, encouraging quality, but incentivizing quantity and long term goals versus rewarding short term success. You also mentioned innovation, but punishing failures and encouraging teamwork and cooperation, but incentivizing individual success. Could you tell us more about those latter two with
2: examples? Sure. So creativity is a great example, I think, because uh, basically we all want our employees to be creative. We want ourselves to be creative because that's much more interesting. If if you keep doing the same thing, it's safe, but it's not that interesting. The the company will not do that well in the long run. So every company will tell you, be creative. But then by being creative, you are increasing the variance, which means that there's a higher chance of breakthrough, but there's also a higher chance of failure. If the company is going to punish you for a failure, for example, not promote you or even fire you, then you're not going to be very creative. You're not going to come up with the crazy ideas that might fail but might be uh, you know, huge for the company. So don't tell your employees you should be creative but then punish them if they fail. Right? So find a way so the usually what you should do is first of all do a debrief, what happened, why did it happen? So if it happened because I was lazy, fire me. But if it happened because people just didn't behave like our intuition was, then you can learn from it and understand how you can do better in the future. What do you need to do in order to not to fail again? And very often that's going to be very useful. But if I'll come with a creative solution and we'll try something, and I know that you're going to punish me. I will try to chase it because I don't, I wouldn't want to admit that I failed. So it's not just that your people are not going to be creative, but when they are creative, um, they are going to chase bad ideas for too long, right? And that's another problem. The last one is the team versus individual. In the team, uh, in the book, I talk about Messi as an example of someone who was the best player in the world, but failed as a team. And then, you know, came uh, the World Cup and uh, he won with Argentina. So the example is not great, but every company that I know tells you, be a team worker, be, you know, be work with others, cooperate. But then if you're incentivized based on individual success, why would I do that? And think about mentoring in a company. It's extremely important to mentor new employees and it's crucial for the company, but it's very often not rewarded. If it's not rewarded, why would they do that? i right? So you need to find ways to actually incentivize such behavior. Don't tell me, this, the mixed signal is telling me be a team worker, but then promote me based on individual success.
1: Uh, Uri, uh, we have spoken about the danger of creating mixed signals, and I think your example are very uh, uh, clear. You mentioned in your book that you have a passion, uh, a strange passion for collecting stories where that has gone wrong. Uh, could you share an example of an incentive going wrong?
2: Sure, there are many, many examples like that. One I mentioned with uh, Domino's Pizza, right? That's a, that's a good example, I think, that uh, that we have. But think about uh, one of the examples that I like is the it's called the rat massacre of, uh, you know, in. Uh, uh, in Hanoi, so basically the French, since you're French, so that's a good example. The French were uh, in charge of Hanoi, and they introduced. We're talking about the early 20th century. They introduced sewer and you know toilets to to Hanoi. That's in a very French way. That's uh, that's what they wanted. With the sewer came rats. There was a big uh, problem with rats in the city and the governor came with a great uh, with a great idea. let's pay people to kill the rats themselves. instead of employing our own people, let's give people some incentives to do it. It's going to be cheaper and more efficient. So there was a poor guy in the city hall that his job was to count the people had to bring tails of rats and when you brought a tail you got I don't know say a cent or whatever whatever it was. Sounds like a great plan, right? If you would have asked me, I would say, look, that sounds good. Let's see. I would say, let's see where it can go wrong. But they didn't ask this question. Well, it did go wrong. So, for example, uh, they started to have lots of tailless rats running around the city because people would cut their tail and set them free. They can still multiply. They can still have babies if they if they don't have tails. They started to have uh, rat farms, right, to grow their own rats and so on. So that that turned out to be counterproductive. I think that's that's an important lesson about incentives that people are extremely creative at gaming incentives. So very often, uh, what you need to do when you design incentives is to use some kind of common sense and say, what can go wrong? First of all, people can be upset. Maybe we'll talk about some of these uh, later, but people can be upset by your incentives. Second, try to think about how they're going to actually game it. And then when you think that you have something game, uh, you know, proof, then run some kind of experiment, some kind of A-B testing, especially if you are online, that's the easiest way to do, to try and see how people react to it, how people actually try to game it and try to improve it until you are sure that what you have is good. And then don't stop there. Introduce the incentives and keep following them because people, like I said, are very creative and with time they might find ways to game it. So try to be a dynamic process in which, uh, from time to time, you're testing your incentives and see
1: how you can, how you can and should improve. Thanks. So, beyond this uh, passion of collecting stories of uh, uh, incentives which uh, gone uh, wrong, luckily, you share also different systematic ways that we could use to successfully uh, frame incentive. You first mentioned the role of mental accounting. Could you define mental accounting and explain how we could use mental accounting as a powerful incentive?
2: So mental accounting was introduced by one of your previous guests, Richard Taylor, in the early 80s. And the idea is that we have some kind of mental accounts that we are doing. So economists think about money as fungible. If I don't spend it on A, I can spend it on B and it should be fungible. But that's not the way we people think about it. So we might have uh, accounting for going out to restaurants and account an account in which we think about paying uh, for utility bills. And in our brain, it's going to be different. What's interesting, what uh, we try to do with this is look at accounts that are really more painful. So paying the utility bill is painful, right? Maybe we can use incentives instead of paying you with money that we. Just telling you, oh, here's another salary. Maybe we can uh, we can pay for this. So the example that we did, I worked with a company called Edmonds in the U. S. Edmonds is an online company for car purchase. So when you're looking for a car, you go online and search for it. They give you reviews, and then when you're ready, they ask you to put in your zip code, and then they give you ads from local uh, car dealerships. Now. Uh, Edmonds earns money when you click on the and you buy the car from through the through the ad that you saw on their website and they wanted people to do it so they gave them an incentive so for example $400 for if you buy the car through that $400 is a lot of money but it's less so when you compare it to a car that costs $25,000 then it's kind of well you know it's 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 a discount but it's you know less than two percent it's not that much right it did have an effect but not as much as they wanted we tried to look using this concept of mental accounting we tried to look for something that will be stronger for them and what we did was to call this money uh, money for gas so to fill up your car turns out that filling up the car is something that most people don't like to do and 400 for fuel that's a lot of money i can really see myself at the pump many times just using this card and happy about it and indeed we found that $400 in between of course we had different people that some of them re- we had a control that did not receive any incentives then we had a group that received $400 and then we had a group that received the uh, gas cards and we found that the gas cards was card was much more effective in incentivizing people to click on the link through admins and in fact we found that $200 in gas cards was more effective than $400 in cash, and that's really the mental accounting at its best, I think, because it shows that uh, it's not. Uh, if if we call, if we label the incentive correctly, we can get much more uh, out mm. of
1: it. Yeah, it's really uh, impressive. Uh, a second way that you uh, mention is about what you call regret aversion. Uh, to encourage new positive uh, behavior. Again, could you uh, give us give us an example uh, uh, using maybe a lottery or?
2: Yes, 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 yes. So that's that's an example for something that I remember as a kid. My grandpa came to Israel after the Holocaust in 1948, and uh, they didn't have money. They were all immigrants. It was a new country, but then. Never mind. The, the reason he, he bought a lottery ticket, uh, the local, uh, the Israeli lottery ticket, that had at the time, I believe, seven numbers. And then he kept buying it for a while, the same seven numbers. and Then he basically became hooked on that. He became addicted to it. So for the rest of his life, another 40 years, he would buy the same numbers every week. If he was away, he asked someone to buy it for, for him. And the reason was that, imagine that, you buy it for 30 years, then you go on vacation and that week your number is coming up, right? That would be devastating, right? The regret, the anticipated regret. In the Netherlands, for example, they have something that they call zip code lottery. The zip codes in the Netherlands are about eight to 10 houses and every week they, they ruffle a different zip code. Now, if your zip code came up and you bought a lottery that week, then you get a large sum of money and you get a BMW, a new BMW from there. If you didn't buy the the lottery, you're going to see your neighbors driving this fancy new BMW and you'll have to explain to your spouse why you didn't do it. So this kind of regret is very powerful. This anticipation of regret is really powerful and you can use it, uh, I used it uh, with a company, for example, uh, that uh, wanted to Encourage people not to drive their car to some kind of seminar. so people were promised free parking and then when they came, they were told you can have the free parking or if you come without a car, we are going to give you at the end of the week we are going to, to choose randomly one of the, one of the people and if these people if this person came without a car we'll give that person say five thousand dollars. Now, imagine that your name comes up and then they say, oh, but you came with the car. Sorry, you're not going to win the $5,000 and we're going to draw another name until we find someone who did not come with the car. Uh, That would be uh, very painful. And this kind of regret is something that uh, was very efficient in uh, incentivizing people more than just giving every person a small amount of money. That was...
1: They added up to $5,000. So it's also a very uh, impressive uh, way to uh, create, to frame uh, um, a powerful uh, incentive. It could be also about helping others. Uh, and could you uh, give us again uh, uh, an example uh, of an efficient, what you call pro social incentive?
2: So there are many examples of pro-social incentives, and one of my students, for example, Alex Imas, has a nice study in which he looked at. He did it in the lab with uh, with students. He brought students to the lab, and in one case he asked them to do something. Never mind the task. In one case, they didn't get anything; they didn't do that well. In another case, they got a very small amount if they if they invested a lot of effort. And in the third case, the small amount went to cha- went to charity. And what he found is that small amount did not help, but small amount that went to charity did help because then people felt good about it. By the way, when he gave a large amount of money, then paying people directly was more powerful than giving to charity, right? But uh, that was important. Another, another example that I like is about overhead aversion talking about mental accounting. So uh, when we give to charity, very often we try to check whether the charity spends lots of money, whether the CEO is flying uh, business, whether, whether the CEO is paid a lot. And that doesn't make any sense to me because what we do, imagine that, um, that I have a student, MBA student that after five years works as a, as a banker, investment banker and makes $600,000 a year, that would be a success. If that person will work in a non-profit and will make so much money we would think oh that person is not that great he's taking money from the people right so we when i give money i want to know that it goes say to the sick kids the time that i'm giving the money to. i don't want it to go to the ceo to drive a fancy car for example. and the, we, which shouldn't be the case as an economist i understand that it shouldn't be the case What all i should care about is how many kids they can help Right? I give them $100, how many kids are they going to help with that? But I can't help myself thinking that uh, I don't want to pay for the fancy car for the CEO. What we did is uh, introduce a, a program in which we told people, look, the overhead is already covered by another donation. Someone else is, uh, is paying for the overhead and you shouldn't care about this. All your money will go to the kids. In this case people didn't care how much what is the overhead of the company what people really cared is that their specific money will go to the charity will go to the kids that they want for the cause that they have so that was a way it relates to mental accounting but that was a way to understand what what do we care about uh, with mental accounting and how can we solve problems like that
1: yes it's also something which is uh, great to uh, encourage people to add new positive behavior uh, by helping uh, others. Uh, Awards is also uh, very different, but uh, also a a powerful uh, incentive. But you mentioned uh, that to really motivate people, there are some conditions for awards to be efficient. Could you tell us more about this?
2: Right. Awards are really great because very often they don't even cost that much money. So think about the Oscars, for example right? That's, uh, it's true that it comes with money because after that you can get better jobs maybe, but in general it doesn't cost that much money. But to understand why it's important you need to think about, for example how often they give the awards. If the awards, imagine that the Oscar ceremony was every week, then it wouldn't be that uh, that prestige to, to, to win it, right? And it's also important who, who gives the award. right? would so say if they, they committed it decides about the, the award of someone that I trust, so I mentioned the Nobel Prize in Physics. If someone receives a Nobel Prize in Physics, I admire that person because they give only once a year, and there is a serious committee that looks at the body of the work of that person and chooses to give it to that person. But if the if the award is given by people that I don't respect, it would have less, uh, less of uh, importance. So there are many things that you can think about so think about employee of the month or employee of the, if you give employee of the day, it's not going to be as effective as employee of the month or employee of the year. But these are examples of relatively cheap incentives that, at least for me, if my dean would decide to give me the researcher of the of the year at my business school, I would be very proud about it. Right? It has no meaning, no financial meaning, but I would just feel really great that, uh, she appreciates me.
0: So Uri, as behavioral science practitioners, we're often focused on helping to create good habits and breaking bad habits. And in a previous episode of this podcast, we were very fortunate to interview Wendy Wood about her great book, Good Habits, Bad Habits. And so we know incentives can play a major role in this double challenge because unfortunately we know that willpower is often not enough to change our habits. So, in your book, you suggest four channels through which incentives can impact behavior change. First, regarding creating habits. Could you tell us about those
2: four channels? Right. So, I don't know about you, but many people, including me, have periods in our life in which we exercise. So, I used to exercise a lot, and I enjoyed it, and then there are periods in my life in which I sit on the sofa and watch Netflix and can't get myself off it, right? And why is it? Why is it that sometimes I'm happy to go to the gym and sometimes I can't take, get myself to go there? And one of the things that uh, we thought about it, it's a paper, uh, it's a research together with Gary Charnes. we thought that if we'll get people to the gym, the first few times are going to be painful, but then after you you do it for a while, it's going to be—it's going to become some kind of habit. Without really defining habits now, but it's, uh, let's define habit as something that you'll keep doing after we stop paying you, right? So we wanted to see this. We took a, a group of students. We paid them hundred dollars uh, for a month to go to the gym eight times. And if you pay our students hundred dollar, they do almost anything you want them to do. And then. We wanted to see what's going to happen. So, one uh, hypothesis could be what we talked about before, some kind of crowding out that if now you learn that uh, in order to go to the gym, I need to pay you. So, you will not go, you will go even less after I stop paying you. Another one could be this habit formation that I was able to get you off the couch and get you to the gym. And now, after a month, you know exactly where the gym is, where you need to park. Uh, You know uh, what kind of exercises you like. And you know many, many of these important things, and you'll keep doing it. And that's what we found. We found that the group that was incentivized was more, more likely to continue exercise even after we stopped paying. Them. And I think, in general, I think that uh, creating habits is the holy grail of incentives. How can we get someone to do something and get used to it such that that person will continue doing it even after we stop paying them?
0: And so that's creating habits. What about breaking habits with incentives? Like how can we help people uh, who smoke quit smoking?
2: So it turns out that smoking is maybe the hardest, one of the hardest addiction to, to get rid of. Many people try and fail, but you can think about it in the same way as we thought about exercising, but with the negative sign. So maybe the, what's really hard is the first month or two, or three or five or six, whatever it is. But if I'll give you enough incentives, you'll stop smoking maybe for that period. And maybe after that, after six months, you wouldn't say, oh, now they start paying me, I should go back to smoking, right? So if if you didn't smoke in the last six months, maybe the urge to smoke will be reduced. And that's what other people, I didn't do research on smoking cessation, but other people did it with some success. That uh, You give people money to break habits, basically.
0: So, you've mentioned the holy grail is habit change and long term changes that last in behavior. How do we do this in such a way that we don't need to permanently incentivize ourselves?
2: So, uh, that's like I said, that's the holy grail, and we are very far from knowing how to do it, but we have some clues. So, think about reading, for example, right? So, we know how to incentivize kids to read a book, right? We can tell them that otherwise they'll be punished or we can give them some kind of reward, but we don't know how to incentivize them to enjoy reading books, and that's what we should try. I think that in that, my, my mother had a great, uh, a great solution to this. As a kid, I used to read, we're talking about the 70s, 80s, I used to read these really trash books about Westerns and, you know, really bad books. And she said, I don't care. As long as you read, I don't care. I think that to a great extent, at least for me as a kid, I know that now some teachers behave differently, but not everyone. I was, I had to read, I don't know, Dostoyevsky. Dostoevsky is a great uh, writer to read, maybe when you're 60 and you have time and you have the patience to do this. For a 15 year old, it's just a really long and boring book. It's uh, no question, it's amazing, but, uh, if you force me to read Dostoevsky, I will stop the second the exam is over and I'll forget it by then, right? So I think that one example is to find something that you like, and that's also about exercise. And I can make you, when you go to the gym, I can demand that you exercise on the elliptical say, or whatever it is, that would be a mistake. The right thing to do is for you to find what to do at the gym. For something I hate running, for example, but I love walking. So try to find something that I love, because otherwise I will not continue later on. So you cannot, I can force myself to run maybe if you pay me enough, but I will not continue in the long run. If I'll find something that I like, I can really keep on doing it uh, after that. And that's true about reading, and it's true about uh, many of the other things. So it's not just, it's not enough to just pay you to do something in order to create a habit. It needs to be something that you actually enjoy after a while
1: re incentive uh, can be used, as we have just uh, seen, to encourage individuals to adopt new positive habits or break uh, break bad ones. But it is also the case for a community. Uh, could you share your amazing experience with the Maasai community?
2: Right. So that's uh, one of the close to my heart, because uh, as a professor, I don't, you know, I work with companies, but that's not really doing good in the world. That's helping companies maybe. The Maasai, uh, what we did over there, is working on something that is called female genital mutilation. I don't want to get too deep into this, but it's it's a horrible uh, habit that they have, habit or tradition that they have, and it's really um, disabling women uh, health-wise and uh, mentally-wise. And the question is how to change it. We, we looked at the program that the Maasai had uh, a couple of years ago. They had the problem with lions. So in Kenya, there used to be many, many lions. But then with progress, there are many more people who live there, and so they have less territory. And in particular, with the Maasai, each time a lion attacked and killed a cow, the warriors would go after the lion and try to kill it. Now they tried to kill it with spears, very often they got injured, but that was the rite of passage for them. To be a warrior and to kill a lion, that was the that's what he wanted to do. That was that would make you a man, an elder over there. What they were able to do over there is to create an incentive not to kill the the lions. What did they what did they do? So before that, when an elder had a cow attacked, he called and it's only men over there. He called the warriors and the warriors went after the lion. What they did is that if a cow was killed by a lion, you could call their people. Their people would come and assess the situation. And if they found that indeed a lion killed the cow, they will give you some kind of certificate that said if in the coming months no lion will be killed in this area, we will pay you back for the cow. Right. so they were able to change doing this they were able to really change the incentives for the, for the elders instead of calling the warriors to kill them they would call the warriors and tell them don't kill lions now and the population of land went in the in this area that in which it was introduced it went up from 10 to 50 within a few years and 50 is the, the most you could have in this area because of you know they are territorial and they there is a limit to how I many we thought that maybe we can do something like that with the female genital mutilation. What we are suggesting, and it's still a work in progress, we're still trying to raise money for it, is to say we're going to have health checkup for the girls. We're talking about 10-year-old girls. And if they not, if they didn't go through FGM, we are going to pay for them to go to high school. high school. High school is very expensive. Think about college in the US, this kind of money, and it's a boarding school. And then we're going to keep checking until they graduate from high school. Now, the reason we need to maybe to back up a bit, the reason uh, the girls go through FGM is economic. Because uh, a woman that, uh, that w- goes through this, her value in the marriage market is much higher. It's really, it's, it's really uh, shocking for us to hear, but the value in cows of, of the little girl in the marriage market market and as, as parents, it's mostly the mothers, they really want their girl to be married well to find a good uh, husband and to get the highest value they can so they go through this FGM. Now, if the girl graduates from high school, then her value in the marriage market and in general in life is much higher because now she can become a nurse or a teacher and her value in the marriage market and in, the, in life in general is much higher. So then they don't need to go through FGM. And what we hope to have is to increase the education of these girls and by that reduce the number of FGM until at some point. So currently, a girl that didn't go through FGM, a woman that didn't go through FGM, will be outcasted. There is a peer pressure for them to be like everyone else. And what we hope is to create a critical mass of girls that will not go through this such that the peer pressure will not be there anymore.
1: Uh, Uri, uh, thanks a lot for this uh, amazing uh, example. We are close to the uh, end of our conversation, and I would like to ask you a, a final question before uh, I hand back to, uh, to Suzanne. I know you have a lot of experience working also with private and public organizations, and uh, at BVNH Consulting, we are working a lot with leaders and organizations that want to start applying uh, the learning from behavioral science. So, regarding incentive, which are used in organization, I think there are a lot of mistakes which are made. What would be your recommendation for a leader who would like to move from mixed signal to what you call clear signals?
2: So it's the combination of economic and psychological incentives, how to find. So we talked a bit about how with the recycling example, for example, how introducing incentives can really make people less likely to do the job. The, the, the important thing, the, the, the incentive that you should look for is something that if I give you money, it actually makes you more happy about, about doing it, right? Because it signals to you that it's important for me and you'll do it not just for the money or for the recognition, but also because now you understand what is it that I want. In many cases, so I can tell you about myself, I don't really know what does it mean to be a good employee. I want to be a good employee, but I don't really know what does it mean. I have some, of course, I know something, but not completely, and the incentives could really change this, and when you design incentives, you should think about something that will reinforce the the kind of psychological benefits that you're interested in.
1: Uh, Just an additional uh, question, which is about the ethics of using incentive within organization. Do you have some recommendation to use uh, uh, incentive in an ethical way?
2: So for me, I can tell you that I have my ethical guidelines. So I will not work with cigarettes companies, for example. right? So I have have, uh, things that I try to apply myself. We need to understand that incentives are a tool. So it's like statistics. Statistics could be used to to get people to stop smoking or it could be used to get people addicted to smoking, right? So statistics is a tool. It's not good or bad. And the same is true about incentives. They're not good or bad in themselves. And the, the question is what you're doing with them. And I really think that it's very important for us when we apply to think about that ethical guidelines that we want to follow. And we need to understand uh, what are going, what are the consequences, and at least for me, I would not work with a company that they don't think that if they try to cheat their customers to to bank something, I will not try to help them, right? But let me give you one example, maybe a short example. I work with uh, Humana, a health insurance company in the US. I don't suspect that they are uh, great people. I, I, I have no reason to think either way, but, for them, when their members are healthy, it's good. They profit more from a healthy member of their insurance company. So they really have the incentives to keep their members healthy, and then I'm happy to help them. right? So that, that's an example where it's, uh, it's good to work with. If I would not work with an insurance company that tries to get people to do things that are not good for them.
0: Makes sense. So Uri, our final question before we wrap up. You know, you're one of the most respected behavioral scientists and a huge leader in this field. From your perspective, what is the future of behavioral science and what is your hope for the
2: field? So that, that's a very loaded uh, question, right? So I think that the the reason I wrote this book is that I want um, the world to understand how incentives work in general. And I think that there is lots of push to understand how behavioral science works, right? And I think that organizations very often uh, work in a way that, like uh, classical economics, thinking about people as selfish, rational, and all the all the good stuff. And we are not. And trying to make uh, so very often, for example, companies find solutions that engineers believe that are perfect, but then people don't adopt them. Right. So if we want to improve the world, I think that understanding people is really crucial. And Psychologists put uh, people at the center, but economists traditionally didn't. And I want to try and combine the two, and like many other people in the field that you mentioned, I, to combine the things such that we learn the tools, the analytical tools and the useful tools from economics into the psychology of people. To understand that people, we, we shouldn't tell people uh, what to do, right? We should uh, find, so people react to incentives. And we should try and understand how they react to incentive, not just assume it. So make the, the the workplace and the world in general much more user-friendly, if you like.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Uri, for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work?
2: Well, go to my webpage, Uri Gnizi, and learn about my research. That's a good place. Buy the book. It's really, uh, that's, uh, that's why I'm here, right, to, to sell books. But we recommend uh, it. Thank you, thank you, I know, I appreciate it. And um, and in general, just uh, try to think in a behavioral way, right? So that's the, maybe the main message over here is don't try to just, oh, we create incentives and everything is going to be okay, but try to think about how people are going to react to your incentive. Try to think deeper into this And don't have what's called curse of knowledge. So don't just assume that you know what people will do because you think about this problem for a long time. Most people, attention is something that most people really, the scarce resource that we have now, and try to understand how to get people to actually change their behavior.
1: Thanks a lot. It was a a great conversation. Uh, We were sure of that before the starting of this uh, uh, chat with uh, Suzanne. But uh, thanks a lot. It will be uh, great for uh, our audience.
0: Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.